Genesis chapter 11, verse 5, verse 6. I want to talk about the power of unity. I believe I'm on the right track this morning with our message. And just so you know that Mary Beth and I did not schedule that last song. She didn't call me up and say, what you want me to play for you on Sunday? I didn't call her up and say, hey, play this song last before I preach. She didn't know what I was preaching. That's how God works. Amen. Genesis chapter 11, verse 5 and 6. You're familiar with your Bible. You'll know that Genesis chapter 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel. I preached on it Wednesday night. If you want to go back and listen, you can get on the website and listen to the entirety of the message. But verse 5 and 6 stuck out to me, and we're going to take that as our text this morning, talk about the power of unity. But verse 5 says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they began to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Father, today I ask that You would speak to us and I ask God that You would touch my life once again and help me to say those things that need to be said. I pray for clarity of thought and precision of speech that I would say no more, no less than needs to be said. And I pray today for open hearts and open minds to receive the words that need to be received. And I pray today that You would do something supernatural in this place. And I pray, God, as we just sang, that You would bind us together. That God, anything that would hinder us from being bound together, anything that would hinder us from being one, anything that would hinder us from being unified, that God, now You would put an end to it. And that God, Your will would be done in this place. And God, we praise You and we glorify You for it all. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. And Amen. I, I feel His presence this morning. Unity is something that you know when it's present and you know when it's absent. Amen. You know when you have it and you know when you don't have it. When there is unity, everything runs smoothly and more gets accomplished, but when there is division and lack of unity, all you have is chaos and confusion. In Genesis chapter 11, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. God had commanded Noah and his sons to disperse and repopulate the earth, but rather than be obedient to God, they decided to settle down and build themselves a city and build a tower that would reach into the heavens. In the two verses we read, God says that they would have accomplished what they set out to do because they were one people and had the same language. If you were to read the New Living Translation, it said they were united and had the same language. They were on the same page. 
even though they were being disobedient, even though they were in rebellion to God, these verses did demonstrate the power of unity. Even though they were doing something completely against God, what, what God wanted them to do, because they were unified, they could have accomplished their task. These verse te- verses tell us that we can accomplish much more when we work together rather than when we are divided. So this morning I want to share with you just several thoughts about unity. You take notes, number one, the blessings of unity. Look at Psalm 133. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. Several blessings or benefits to having unity. Letter A, unity attracts God's favor and anointing. In other words, unity gets God's attention. Psalm 133 tells us that unity is like the anointing oil that runs down the beard of Aaron. They would pour out oil upon the high priest as they would anoint him. And oil is symbolic of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I believe where there is unity, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit will be present and operating. Just think about this for a moment. When the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost, it was when the believers were in one mind and one accord. Let's read about it in Acts chapter 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind that filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I believe if we want God to empower us and if we want God to bless us, there has to be unity in the church. I believe if we want the anointing of God and I believe if we want the supernatural touch of God on our lives and if we want signs and wonders and miracles to take place in our midst, we've got to have unity in the body of Christ. I don't believe God's going to bless division. I don't believe that God's going to bless when we come in and there's chaos and confusion in the house of God. I don't believe that God's attracted to disunity. I don't believe that God is attracted to people who are fussing and fighting all of the time. Amen? God can't bless people who are out of sync because He is a God of unity. Think about that. You've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. There's unity in the Godhead. And expects unity to be among His people. In John 17, Jesus prayed that His people would experience unity. John 17, verse 20 to 23 says this, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that You sent Me. Think about that. When we have unity, the world will believe that God sent Jesus. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Guess what? When we aren't functioning in unity and when we aren't one as we need to be one, the world's going to struggle knowing that God loves them. 
Isn't that what he says? Make them one as we are one so that the world will know that you've sent me and that you love them as you have loved me. It's hard to show the world that God loves them when the church is fighting all the time. If we're to represent Him and we're fussing, we can't show them the love of God, can we? But also, Psalm 133 says, God commands His blessing where there's unity. Isn't that what it said? That He commands His blessing, even life, evermore. I believe God will put His favor on a church where there's unity. What does that mean? I believe God will open doors. I believe God will open opportunities for a church that walks in unity. I believe God will do for a church what He won't do for other churches when there's unity. I believe God will give financial provision for a church that has unity that He won't give for other churches. Amen? But do you think God's going to bless a church that's always bickering and can't get along? I mean, come on. Do you, think, I mean, do you really think God's going to bless a church that can't get along with each other? No. But when people can walk together as one and have unity and harmony and be in sync, God can pour out His presence. And God can anoint that place. And lives can be changed. And people can be touched. And people can be saved and won to Jesus. And miracles can take place. And lives can be changed. And the community can be turned upside down if we can just learn how to walk together in unity. And I'm not talking about always getting along and liking everything and and having uniformity. But I'm talking about having true harmony and unity. And sometimes we have to agree to disagree. But I'm talking about working through things and having unity. And sometimes... Not allowing our feelings about things, letting it divide us. Amen. But secondly, unity leads to greater productivity. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falls, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Look at verse 9 again. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. You see, more can be accomplished when we work together than working separately. We can all agree with that, right? We, we can do more together than we can separately. We're better together than we are by ourselves. When Jesus sent out the disciples, He didn't send them out one by one. He sent them out, what, two by two. Why? I believe it's because there's strength in numbers. Two's better than one. Three's better than two. And so on and so forth. Listen to Leviticus 26, verse 7 and 8. You shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred. And a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Do you see that? 
Five will chase a hundred. A hundred will put ten thousand to flight. There's strength in numbers. We'll achieve more together than we can separately. The people working together at the Tower of Babel would have accomplished their task had God not intervened. That's the power of unity. They were rebelling against God. They were being disobedient. But together, they would have done it. And that's what God said, had it, didn't He? He said, they, nothing will be impossible for them because they are one people. They would have done it. Working together, they would have done it. That's the power of unity. It leads to greater productivity. But yet we're living in a day where people says, hey, I've got to do it by myself. We're living in a day where, we're, we're, let's just be honest, when it comes to churches, most traditional churches say, well, the pastor's got to do it all. He needs to do all the calling. He needs to do all the visiting. He needs to do all the ministry. But here's the thing. The Bible says that we're a kingdom of priests. We're a kingdom of priests. The priesthood of believers. Guess what? You're in the ministry. You may not hold credentials in Cleveland, Tennessee and may never stand in the pulpit, but you're a minister if you're saved. That means when somebody's sick, when somebody's hurting, when somebody needs help, guess what? The, the pastor's not the only one that's supposed to be out there doing anything. When it comes to preaching the gospel and trying to lead people to Jesus, guess what? The pastor's not the only one supposed to be out there doing it. Guess what? What you're doing this morning sitting on these pews, that shouldn't be your only contribution to the kingdom. <laughs> I know some of you didn't like that. But when we do our part, we can do more. Everybody has a purpose. Everybody has a gift. Everybody has something they can do. And if we'll work together in unity, we can have a greater productivity. Amen? Leads me to one more thing. Unity leads to sustainability. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25 and 26. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? A house divided cannot stand. It can't last. Same true for church. If a church is divided, it will not accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish. It will not be everything that God wants it to be. A church that is divided will eventually implode from within and it will destroy itself. Amen? If we're going to last, if we're going to be sustainable, there has to be unity. And you're saying right now, well, preacher Jesus said he'll build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And guess what? Jesus did say that. But guess what? He said he'll build his church. He didn't say he'd build your church. He didn't say he'd build my church. He said he'd build his church. Let me ask you this. Whose church is this? Is it your church or my church or is it his church? Because if it's yours or mine... And we don't have unity. 
it's not sustainable. We might keep the doors open for so long, but it won't last forever. But if it's His church, and there's unity, He'll build it, and it'll keep going, and going, and going. And let me just say this, the church isn't a building anyways. We can meet in the parking lot. Amen. But if we want to keep functioning as we need to function and doing what God wants us to do, there has to be unity. You want to know why there are so many churches personally? Because division. Somebody got mad, I'll take my ball and I'll go somewhere else. I'll take my four and I'll go somewhere else. I mean, that, that, that's what I believe. I don't like what you do, I'll go somewhere else. I believe God just has to shake His head. And He looks down, why, why, why can't my people just get along? I sent my son to die and shed his blood. My son prayed for him before he left this world. Why, why, why can't they just get along? They've got the Holy Spirit living inside of them. The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and they're, they're down there fussing over all this stuff. Why, why can't they just get along? But if we'll ever come together, we can have His favor. His anointing, His power. We'll be productive. And we'll be sustainable. That's what I want. I don't want to ever look back and wonder where's the Jefferson Church of God at. I mean, should the Lord tarry and God ever move me on from here and I go elsewhere, I don't want to ever look back and be like, where's the Jefferson Church of God at? And come to find out, well, sister so-and-so got mad at brother so-and-so and Fights broke out, and I don't want to hear stuff like that. Listen, and I've heard stories of churches, I mean, having fist fights break out, but it just, just for stuff. Unity is important, church. It's important. And we can sit here today and think, well, it will. Pastor, why are you making such a big deal out of it? Because God, I believe, makes a big deal out of it. He's a God of order. He's not one of chaos. He's not one of confusion. He's a God of order. Let me move on to my my second main point. What are the hindrances to unity? Well, letter A, unforgiveness. This is a biggie. Unforgiveness. The unwillingness to forgive someone who has wronged you hinders unity. Not willing to let go of what somebody has said, what somebody has done, hinders unity. Why is it that we want to hold on to grudges and hold on to what somebody has said? And here's the thing, sometimes people hurt us and don't realize they have hurt us. 
And yet we'll hold on to it for years and we'll allow it to fester. And we'll keep reopening the wound over and over and over again. And we'll keep replaying it over and over and over again. And we'll come in and we won't speak and we won't shake hands and just won't let it go. Destroying the church. Let me just say something. You've heard me say this before. What anybody has done to you doesn't compare what you've done to Jesus. What anybody has done to you doesn't even come close to what you've done to Jesus. What you've done put Him on the cross. And yet He got on the cross. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Stephen's being stoned to death. And he looks up, Father, forgive them. Peter, he's going to try to be slick. Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother if he forgives? Offends me. Seven times seventy. Or seven times seven. Jesus says, seven times seventy. In other words, if he keeps coming back to you asking for forgiveness, you keep forgiving. Pastor, what if they don't ask forgiveness? You forgive anyways. Because it's the right thing to do, even if it don't feel right. Let me just say something to you. It might not feel right to forgive, but I promise you, you'll feel better if you do. You'll feel better if you do. All, all, all of that pent-up anger and frustration inside of you, if you'll forgive and let it go, you'll feel better. Amen? Let me move on. Bitterness. You see, unforgiveness turns to bitterness. It turns to resentment. When we fail to forgive others, and we hold on to our hurts, and we hold on to those grudges, it turns to bitterness. And maybe you're here today, you've got something against somebody, and you've been holding on it to so long, for, for so long, now you're bitter towards them. And some of you may have walked in here today, you're even angry towards somebody. You need to let it go. There's another hindrance. Jealousy. Jealousy. When we're jealous of others and what God does in their lives and how God uses them, it creates division rather than unity. You can write this statement down. When we covet other people's gifts rather than celebrate their gifts, there will always be division. When we covet other people's gifts, I'm talking about spiritual gifts, talents, when we covet their gifts rather than celebrate their gifts, you're going to have division. We should celebrate people. Rather than covet people. Amen. We should celebrate what God does in somebody's life. We should celebrate how God uses somebody rather than covet. I wish God used me like that. Just celebrate what God does in them. Amen. Rather than, oh, I can't God use me like that. I can't God talk through me like that. I couldn't God make me eloquent like that. Celebrate what God does in somebody's life. We get jealous and envious. And we can't rejoice with people. 
And we stifle the unity that God wants to create in the church. Amen? Let me say this. Instead of being envious of what gift somebody has, find out what your gift is and use it. Amen? Find out what God wants you to do and put it to use. I believe everybody has a gift. Letter D, self-focus or self-absorption. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look, not on, look, look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. When you believe in Jesus, you become a part of God's family. Therefore, you have to lose the me mentality. It's no longer just about you, but when we focus only on ourselves, guess what? There's a lack of unity. When the focus is on me, myself, and I, unity is going to be missing in the church. Paul says, don't just look out for your own interest, look out for the interest of others. Isn't that what he says? Consider others as more important than yourself. And we have a hard time with that. Listen, there's people that come to church strutting around like a peacock. Look at me. You've heard me say this before. I want to say it again. If everyone took care of the needs of someone else, everyone's needs would be met. I want to say that one more time. If everybody took care of the needs of somebody else, everybody's needs would get met. But yet we come in with the me mentality. How's the church going to meet my needs? How's the church going to take care of me? And if all of us walk in here today, how's the church going to take care of me? Then guess what? We all leave with our needs unmet. Do you think we have unity that way? As long as we all come, how's the church going to serve me? How's the church going to help me? Do you, th- do you think we're going to have unity that way? We all live the same way. But if we all show up with the mentality, what can I give? And what can I do to help somebody else today? How can I invest in somebody else's life? I think things would change. Amen. But yet we're so self-focused. It's the me generation. It's the me generation. You look at people's Facebook feeds and Instagram feeds and it's the me generation. Everybody's taking selfies. Even adults. Poking out their lips and taking selfies. It's the me generation. All about me. And we've lost sight of other people. I heard this years ago, if you want joy in your life, put Jesus first, other second, and yourself last. And you can have joy. J-O-Y. Jesus, others, yourself. 
be so self-absorbed and self-focused. It's easy to get caught up in our own little world. It's easy to get caught up in the rat race of life Monday through Saturday and come to church on Sunday. Bless me, Pastor. I need something this week. And not want to serve. But can I tell you, I believe Jesus' greatest joy came in serving other people. I believe that. And I believe our greatest joy could come in just trying to serve other people. Coming in here on Sunday morning, I want to help somebody today. Coming in here and getting out of this altar and praying for other people instead of coming here wanting to be prayed for all the time. And I'm not against praying for people and if you've got needs, we want to pray for you. But I believe sometimes you might get what you need if you'll just start laying hands on somebody else praying for them. Maybe you need a touch in your body. But you know somebody else is in a worse off condition than you are. You just start praying God heal them. And while you're praying for their healing, virtue begins to flow through you. Because you preferred somebody else over your own self. Don't be so self-focused, church. Here's what I want to say, I, I, I guess, about this point is that We've got to learn how to be sacrificial. And we don't like making sacrifices. Let me move on. Let me give you some keys to restoring unity. Praying for one another. Keys to restoring unity. Letter A. Praying for one another. Calling each other's name out in prayer. It's hard to be mad at somebody if you pray for them. It's hard to stay angry at somebody if you try to pray for them. You can't do it. You can't stay mad and pray for them. You either got, you got to stop praying or you got to repent and deal with anger. We often say prayer changes things, but here's one thing I've come to find out prayer changes me. If you start praying for people, prayer will change you. It'll change the situation, but prayer will change you. It'll soften your heart. It'll change your attitude about who you're praying for. Amen? Let her be loving one another. We want unity. We've got to start really loving one another. Jesus said that the world will know that we belong to Him when we love one another. He said the world will know we belong to Him when we love one another. He didn't say that they'll know we belong to Him when we love them. Think about it. He said, when we love each other, they'll know we belong to Him. You would think He said that they know by how we love them. How we love each other. I find that fascinating. That how they see us is 
how we get along with each other. It's not how we treat them. It's how we treat each other. You know what that implies? They're watching us. But if we want unity, we've got to love each other. And guess what? We can't just love each other by our own willpower. We've got to have the Holy Spirit's help. Amen? True love for one another will lead to real unity. And it takes the Holy Spirit to produce real love. But you know what? We, we, we throw around the word love like it's nothing. We talk about I love our cat. We, we love our dog Fido. And then we talk about I love my wife. We, 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 we put our dog in with our spouse. And we know it's not the same kind of love. But that's how we throw love around. We need real, genuine love. Amen? And love should come naturally from our lives as believers. Love's a fruit of the Spirit. Let me, let me say this. If you are saved, love should come from your life naturally. Let me, in other words, you shouldn't be trying to force love out of your life. It should just pop up. An apple tree don't have to try to force out apples. If it's healthy, apples are coming from the tree. Amen? If you're healthy as a Christian, love's coming. In fact, it's the first one listed in the fruit of the Spirit. It's coming. You shouldn't have to try to strain, oh, I'm going to love. No. It should just, it should just come. Because of and being in there. May not always be perfect, but it should be there. And, and let me just say this. If you're here today, and you're going around hateful all the time, you might need to check the root. Because you may not know Jesus like you think you do. Jesus said you'll know by the fruit they bear. Amen? Real quickly, I've I, I got to move on and get ready to close. But, but, but let's look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 about love. I, I want to read it from the New Living Translation. I like what it says. If I could speak all the languages of earth, and he, he just got 1 Corinthians 12 talking about all the spiritual gifts. And we're Pentecostal people. We like the spiritual gifts. We like the, the prophecy and the, the words of wisdom and the speaking in tongues and the, and, and the gifts of healing. We love those things. But he's going to let us know that those things without love, nothing. I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Listen, you can talk in tongues until you're blue in the face, but if you don't love, you're nothing but a bunch of noise. What he says. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. Listen, Paul understood what it was like to have revelation and understanding. And he says, hey, if I had all that 
and didn't have love, I'm nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Now he's going to kind of give us a definition here of love. Love is patient and kind. You want to find out if you're being loving? Am I patient? Am I kind? Isn't that what he said? Love is patient and kind. Am I patient? Am I kind? Jesus is patient and kind. You can put Jesus in there at love. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud. Am I boastful or jealous or proud? It says it's not rude. It does not demand its own way. Uh-oh. Are you demanding your own way? If you are, you're not being that loving. It's not irritable. Husbands and wives, are we getting in trouble sometimes? Are we, are we irritable? Don't, don't move on just yet. Keeps no record of being wrong. When you keep a track record of all the offenses against you, You're not being loving. Every word somebody said against you, every time somebody's hurt you, you're not being loving. You think Jesus keeps a record of every wrong? What does the Bible say? As far as the east is from the west, He has removed our sins. From us. And he remembers them. What? No more. Some of you might have a little black book somewhere. Where you've written down what people have done against you. Love keeps no record of being wrong. Some of you got it stored up there. And you keep replaying it over you see them. Love keeps no record of being wrong. Go on, Brad. It does not rejoice about injustice. When you see somebody who's done wrong and or, or, or injustice, when you see somebody who, who suffers, you don't you don't rejoice about it. You don't you don't well they got what they deserve. You, you don't rejoice over it. But rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love rejoices when the truth wins out. When the truth comes to life, you rejoice. Love never gives up. You don't give up on people. It never loses faith. It's always hopeful. Endures through every circumstance. Some of you mamas ought to say amen right there because you got kids that have gone wayward back in the world. But because you love, 
You never give up. You never lose hope. Amen? But here's another thing. You've got to let go of the past. Here's another. This is a hindrance. Letting go of the past. Some people can't let go of the past. They want to live in the past. Here's the thing. You can't live in the past. Can't change it. You got to move on. Philippians 3.13 I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth those things which are before. You got to let it go. You got to let it go. I believe it wants to take you so much greater than where you've been. But yet so many people have been held prisoner by their past. And it keeps us from going forward. We're locked in to where we are. You've got to let go of your past. We can learn from it, but we can't let it hold us hostage. Amen. One final hindrance, or one final thing to, to, to help us build unity. Bearing one another's burdens. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The church should be a place where we lift one another up and help each other through life. The Bible says we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Amen. We need to understand we aren't in this Christian life alone. And yet so many people feel like they're alone. There are so many Christians who feel like I, I, I'm in this thing by myself. And, and, and let me just, just be somewhat transparent. Me as a pastor know that better than anybody else. So many times I feel like I'm in this thing by myself. And nobody walks where I have to walk. I feel like I have nobody to talk to. Nobody understands. She don't understand. That's my wife. But she don't understand. If I were to tell her some of the pressures and things that I face sometimes, she wouldn't understand. She loves me, but she wouldn't understand. And if I were to tell some of you, you wouldn't understand. It's a lonely journey sometimes. That's why I asked Wednesday night and I asked the men this morning in our Sunday school, I, I need your prayer. Because it's a lonely road sometimes. And we all get that way sometimes. Like we're, like, I'm by myself. I'm isolated. That we come to church with people, but I'm alone. That we have nobody to talk to, nobody to just, let's be honest, just unload on. And we need that. And the church ought to be a place where we can come and find accountability, a place where we can come and feel like we can tell what's going on in our life without fear of rejection, without fear of judgment. But so often we don't open up because we're going to be looked at well, they ought to be stronger. They shouldn't have those problems. They shouldn't be struggling with that. But the reality is we have things we get to deal with. And this ought to be a place of safety. And this ought to be a place where we can all come and find 
a sense of help. This should be a place where we could come and find support. A place where we can all come and just kind of lock arms and help each other with our burdens. That when it gets too heavy for you, that we can come and say, hey, you're not going to buckle under this. I'm here to help you. Amen? And yet too often we don't find that in church. What you often find in church is that when somebody's stumbled and when somebody's fallen, we keep pushing them down instead of coming along and picking them up. I don't want that to be here at the Jefferson Church of God. I want this to be a place that when we see our brothers and sisters stumbling, we come along and say, no, you're not, you're not giving up. Because the reality is we've had people walk through our doors that are no longer here and we've just let them walk away and we've let them leave. We hadn't went to them and we hadn't lifted, up them, lifted them up. We hadn't helped them carry their burdens too well. And they're not here today. I'm guilty. All of us are guilty. Amen. So in closing, centuries ago, ancient China wanted to secure its border from its northern invaders. They built the Great Wall of China to protect the border. You've seen pictures of it. You've heard stories. The wall stretched for 1,500 miles. It was 12 to 40 feet wide and 20 to 50 feet high. The wall was too high for the enemy to scale, too thick to tear down, and too long to go around. They would often post soldiers at different places as well to protect it. It was built wide enough on the top for chariots to patrol. If they heard of an attack at distant location, they could easily get to it. They were up high, giving them a superior advantage over their enemies, and they knew that they had protected their border sufficiently against all enemies. But here's the thing. In the first 100 years of the Great Wall of China, the nation was invaded three times. Here's how. An enemy bribed the gatekeepers and entered into the land undetected. They had built a massive wall to try to keep people out, but the enemies came in through the front gate because they bribed the gatekeeper. When we diminish the importance of unity in the body of Christ, we risk being invaded by the enemy. God has called us to divine fellowship. And that fellowship is one of the most powerful tools of witness to a lost and dying world. If we don't protect it, if we don't strive for it, and do everything we can to promote it, we open the gate to the enemy. And guess what? He's going to attack, he's going to pounce, and he's going to cause ineffectiveness and destruction. Everybody here today has a part to play in promoting and protecting the unity of the church. I can't do it by myself. No one person can do it by themselves. All of us have a part to play. It takes the effort of everyone. And so today, it's my prayer, it's my desire that God would make us one. It's my prayer that God would bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. My prayer that any issues that we may have with one another, that they would be dealt with, laid aside, and that we could go forward and do all that God has called us to do. Amen. Stand with me all over this place this morning.